One of the things I want to just show you right now how the book of Genesis works. Uh, first of all, verses and chapter numbers were all added about a thousand years ago. So the ancient manuscripts didn't have chapter uh, verse titles. So Genesis, the book, opens with a prologue, which is the story, the song of creation. And then uh, at 2 verse 4, you have words that don't really mean much to us, but it says this is the account of the heavens and the earth. Uh, the word in Hebrew here is Toledo, and the whole book of Genesis hangs on this word. And this is essentially saying, this is the story of the creation of the world, chapter one. Uh, then you have another Toledo uh, in our chapter today, five verse one. This is the Toledo of Adam, or the story of Adam, chapter two. Uh, that this is how they're doing chapters back then. And then six verse nine, this is the account of Noah, or the story of Noah, uh, chapter three. And so um, I just want to put that before us. This is the skeleton on which all the flesh of the narrative hangs. So now let's look at a portion of the narrative that we're going to look at this morning because I've been assigned half of chapter four through the first half of chapter six. Don't get depressed yet, though. Uh, stand for the reading of God, Genesis chapter four. Picking up where we left off last week, verse 17. And what a way to just start off the reading of God's word. God made love to his wife. I mean, God, Cain. I'm all flustered with that first clause there. In Hebrew, it's the word yada. I mean, it's, which is this word for knowledge, intimate knowledge. Um, and so Cain knew his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city and he named it after his son Enoch. This is not the Enoch we're going to look at today. It's a different Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mehuahel, and Mehuahel was the father of Methushahel, and Methushahel was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Ada, the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played stringed in instruments and pipes. Zillah also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal Cain's sister was Naamah. And this is what Lamech said to his wives. It's actually a song. Adah and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me a boy for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Adam then knew his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in the place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son and named him Enosh. And that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. This is God's word for now. And you're thinking, what is this guy going to say today? So just by way of review, let's start with review. Genesis opens with a song. It's this beautiful song about God who creates the world. In fact, the first two verses of our Bible 
want us to see that creation is an act of war. It's God making war on the tohu vevohu, the chaos of God entering it and ruling it and subduing it and putting it all in its place. And how God out of that, that tohu vevohu, that chaos brings about light and order, beauty, galaxies, skies, seas, lakes, rivers, forests, fields, gardens, flowers, living creatures of every kind that fly and swim and inhabit the land. And God looked at it and said, it's good. It's good. He looked at all of it and said, it's very good. In fact, that word good all of a sudden just kind of feels blah to us. It's generic. Uh, It doesn't come close to describing the kind of world that God creates. And so a synonym for uh, the word good in Hebrew is the word shalom. And shalom is a word that means more than just peace or the absence of conflict. Shalom is everything existing in perfect order and harmony. It's, It's literally something that we probably could never imagine. Uh, shalom is when everything is just the way that God intended it or made it to be. Uh, shalom is this reality where, where everything oozes with purpose and meaning and value, uh, where, where reality just gushes with joy and satisfaction. That's shalom. In fact, in the Bible, shalom has a name, another name, called the kingdom of heaven, which is why the kingdom of heaven is the vision of this church. The kingdom of heaven is just that. It's heaven. It's heaven come to earth to make earth heaven. The kingdom of heaven is when God breaks in and he pushes back all the chaos, the tohu vevohu, like he did at creation, and restores it to shalom. It's the lame walking. It's the blind seeing. It's the deaf hearing. It's the dead being raised. It's the good news of God being in charge. It's the good news of God's rule, his reign coming to earth like it did in Genesis in creation and then the way it's going to come in the rest of the story in new creation. In fact, I love Isaiah 52 verse 7, uh, the prophet just yearning for this. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, gospel, who proclaim peace, shalom, who bring good tidings, proclaim salvation, who say to Zion... Our God reigns, and he does reign, and he is reigning. But this is the tragedy then of the next part of Genesis, Genesis 3, uh, because what what, uh, Genesis wants us to see in its opening chapters is to teach us that when sin, sin enters the world in Genesis 3, it violates, it literally violates the shalom, God's shalom. And because of sin, the earth loses heaven, Adam and Eve lose the garden, and sin puts the whole world on this slippery slope towards chaos. And it infects everything. And we see this immediately in the next story, the story of Cain and Abel. Cain literally becomes chaos, and he brings chaos to his family. Uh, Here in this first family, you already have brother, killing brother. And now you keep reading as we did today. Uh, Civilization is advancing. Cain builds a city. In fact, the word for city uh, in Latin, it's it's the word civitas, from which 
we get words like civility and civilized and civilization. I don't know if anyone played the game civilization uh, growing up. I spent way too many hours uh, on that game, uh, diverting from other things that I should have been doing. Uh, But part of Genesis 4 reads like the game of civilization. You see all these human advances in terms of science and technology. Uh, You have farming and animal husbandry. Uh, In verse 22, you have the forging of metals into tools. In verse 21, you have these great advances in in the arts. You have music and musical instruments uh, being developed. And here's where I want to ask a question. I think it's an important one. Does human progress deal with the problem of sin? Does human progress make humans better in terms of ethics, character, virtue? Because this is the premise of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment is is that important age that gave us our modern world. It's a very significant age in in history, especially history of the West, because the Enlightenment essentially concluded that the problem with our world is not this antiquated idea of sin. Because the only reason we have this idea of sin is because of this antiquated idea that we have of God in his revelation. If we just get rid of uh, those antiquated ideas, then we could get rid of uh, this notion that sin is the problem. And, and what it did is it really replaced all of that. It, it, it concluded that the reason why the world is the way it is and why it's bad and why it can sometimes be evil is really because of a lack of knowledge. People do bad things because of ignorance. So if we just give them more knowledge, we can solve all the political, social, and moral evils. Now, God gave us our minds, and so God is all about uh, the advancement of knowledge. But in the Enlightenment, human reason literally throughout divine revelation and science really replaced theology as the queen in the academy. And it was Frederick Nietzsche who really prophetically warned the world of the massive consequences of this shift. And it's not like he wanted to go back into his religious past, but he said, we still have to know what we're facing right now. He writes this in 1886. He says, the greatest event of our time is that God is dead and that the belief in the Christian God is no longer tenable. And this is now beginning to cast its first shadows over Europe. And then he warned this collapse of the belief in God would leave such a huge vacuum. And according to Nietzsche, the most likely candidate to fill this huge vacuum would be the human will to power. And he said this will to power would produce messiahs who would have no moral constraints and this insatiable desire to control humankind. And so we can look back on history, and we can even look back on on the Enlightenment and and even all the things that it's given us because it's given us so much, starting with modern medicine from from dentistry to surgery. Uh, Think about all the means today that we can numb pain and destroy disease. Uh, Think about modern engineering from everything from planes, trains, and automobiles 
state-of-the-art houses, skyscrapers, stadiums, golf courses, resorts, gated communities. Gave us Sigmund Freud and modern psychology and all the techniques for inner healing. It gave us Karl Marx and his enlightened forms of government like socialism and communism that promised utopia to our world. In fact, this is what drove the whole enlightenment project. It was the promise of utopia, of heaven on earth. But think about what else this enlightenment project gave us, this age of reason. It gave us the bloodiest century by a landslide. Paul Johnson, his book, Modern Times, says it is estimated that in the 20th century, 170 million persons were systematically and cruelly killed just by the actions of governments. In many cases, these governments were their own. Some were killed to further political goals. Some were killed in war, but most were killed not for what they were as individuals, but who they were as a group. And this is why some of the greatest minds of the 20th century left their agnostic humanism and turned back to God. Uh, Thinkers like C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, C.M. Joe, G.K. Chesterton, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and maybe the greatest thinker, at least the greatest journalist of the 20th century, Malcolm Muggeridge, he became a Christian in the early 60s, wrote one of what I think top 10 books, Jesus Rediscovered. And then at the end of the 1960s, listen to this, listen to what he writes. He says, whereas other civilizations have been brought down by the attacks of barbarians from without, ours had the unique distinction of training its own destroyers at its own educational institutions and then providing them with facilities for propagating their destructive ideology far and wide, all at the public expense. Thus did Western man decide to abolish himself creating his own boredom out of his own affluence, his own vulnerability out of his own strength, his own impotence out of his own erotomania. Wow, what a word. And having convinced himself that he was too numerous, labored with pill and scalpel and syringe to make himself fewer until at last having educated himself into imbecility and polluted and drugged himself into stupefaction, he kneeled over a weary, battered old brontosaurus and became extinct. This is in the late 1960s. If you ever wonder why our culture today is in such decay, our problem, according to the Bible, is not lack of knowledge. It's sin. And this is exactly what is, is, is going on in our text. Human progress does not make humans better or more just, or more charitable. It just provides greater capacity for both good and evil. The same ax that fells a tree to build a house is also the instrument to crush a skull. And this is the story of Lamech. Look at Lamech in verse 23 of chapter 4. Lamech said to his wives, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear My words, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man, a boy, is how it reads, for simply injuring me. Do you hear his boast? If you hurt me, I crush you. I will get revenge on you, says Lamech, 70 
times seven. And so he kills a man for wounding him and even kills a mere boy for bruising him. And what you have here in Lamech is, is a man who's so consumed with himself, he's so filled with anger and revenge that, that anyone who hurts him at all, he's going to take revenge on that person, not just seven times, but 70 times. And not only that, but he's going to turn all of this into a song. This is one of the first songs in the Bible. Uh, that's why it's in that uh, indented uh, form in, in your Bibles, uh, because this is maybe the first billboard chart buster. He puts his evil to a song, because, because music itself is a very powerful medium. And what Lamech now is showing us is where a world is, where a world goes that is disconnected from God in the garden. It's going the way of Cain. I don't know if you remember our summer series, but this is exactly one of the things that Jude said to the early Christians in his book, because he's like, woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. And what is the way of Cain? The way of Cain is the will to power. It's this desire to dominate. It's this erotomania, human pride. It's living to make a name for ourselves. And what's the fruit of Cain? Lamech. If Cain avenged seven times, Lamech's going to do it 70 times seven. And what the text wants us also to see is that Lamech isn't just one bad apple because Jewish scholars who read the text so carefully, uh, they, they also take note that, wow, Lamech is also the seventh generation from Cain. And they say this isn't coincidence because Seven in the, in the Bible symbolizes uh, completion and wholeness. So then what you have here in the seventh generation of Cain, this man Lamech, he's so completely filled and wholly filled with this kind of evil. 70 times seven, you hurt me. That's what I'm going to do to you. And stop and think about what kind of chaos this unleashes upon the world. And this is the seed of Cain. This is the lineage of Cain. And what we see now is the world is just descending further and further into the tohu vevohu that God took on at creation. The world is in chaos so that by the time you get to chapter 6 of Genesis, family chaos is communal chaos. And communal chaos quickly becomes institutional chaos. And institutional chaos becomes global chaos. And look at our world today. Look at our cities, our politics, our neighborhoods, families, marriages, even our own very lives, the state of chaos that they can be in. See, here's where the text now is begging this question. What is God going to do about this? How is he going to deal with the chaos? How is he going to push it back and bring about shalom? This is where the Christian needs to be careful not just to run to Jesus because the Bible doesn't run to Jesus. Uh, this is why Christians so often just skip over half of their Bibles. But as we continue to uh, journey our way through Genesis, we're going to get just 12 chapters into 
Genesis chapter 12, obviously, and God's going to deal, we're going to see, with the chaos through a man who's going to become a people, this called out people. In fact, uh, the Greek for called out is ekklesia, which is the word for church. So God's going to deal with this, this, this chaos through uh, a, a people uh, who will be called by God to not only be a light to the nations, to be like God and, and for God, but to also be fully in the world for the world, all in partnership, bringing about the kingdom of heaven. Shalom to chaos. And this people, as we already know from Genesis 3, will be impregnated with the hope of all hopes, the seed of the woman, uh, the, the, the huge hope of this coming one, this king of the kingdom. And, and, and when this king comes, he's going he's gonna to announce the kingdom of heaven and he's going to be a light that shines out of the darkness. He's going to be a peace that reconciles heaven and earth. He's going to be a deliverer who's going to crush the evil one and evil once and for all. And he's going to be the creator who's going to inaugurate creation, new creation. And he'll reign forever and ever. And I say with Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of him who preaches good news, who announces the fact that our God reigns. And thank God that our text does not stop with Genesis 4, but the story continues and that we see that there's more than just the line or the seed of Cain, but there's another line, there's another lineage, there's, a, there's another story, there's another narrative that, that is being uh, just brewed up here. In fact, this is where I want to introduce you again to that Hebrew word that I started with. Uh, this word is important because the whole book of Genesis is organized, this, organized around this word. It's the word toledot. And toledot, uh, as I said, it's, it's typically translated generations of. It's all over the book of Genesis. It's also strategically placed throughout the Old Testament. In fact, think about this. Our New Testament begins with Toledot. This is the generations of. And it simply means the story of. And so, as I said, uh, Genesis opens with a prologue, the song of creation, and then you have the first Toledot in 2 verse 4, uh, the story of the, the heavens and the earth being created. And just look at how that first chapter ends with Lamech. And it's the story of how God's good world that he creates becomes evil. And then the next Toledot, the next chapter, chapter 2 and 5 verse 1, now we have the Toledot of Adam. This is the Toledot of Adam's family. And here's what the Bible is doing now in chapter 5 verse 1. It is introducing us to the story within the story. Now, again, this doesn't make uh, the other parts of the Bible uh, less important because it takes all the stories of the Bible to tell the one main story. But there is one big story that runs through the entire biblical narrative. And this word toledot acts as a spotlight. It shines a spotlight on this thread to say, here it is. It wasn't in Cain, but now it's here. And Adam 
had a son whose name is Seth. Seth is the seed. That lineage through whom God is going to restore shalom to the chaos of our world. And really without getting ahead of ourselves, this is the Christmas story. Because in Luke chapter 3, where we have the Christmas story, we also have this. Jesus, son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That's where this line, this Toledot, this story is going to go. But in the first couple of verses of Genesis chapter 5, it wants to show us that um, a lot has been lost especially in humans, because it takes us back into the song of creation to remind us what God made Adam, the human being, to be, this imago Dei, these little miniatures of God himself, to be these perfect reflections of God's glory in the world. But now with original sin, that image is so deeply marred that you have in 5 verse 1 and 2 uh, that humans now don't just reflect that image, they now bear the image of Adam. And it's Genesis' way of just talking about how, how so much is lost, even just in humanity, that we're, we're so fallen from what God made the human to be. And then with, with each person that you read, I, I spared you of all of this, of reading through all of chapter five, but it's gonna say how this person gave birth to this person, they lived this long. And this person gave birth to this person, they lived this long. But with each person that is named Genesis 5, you know how it ends? And he died. And he died. And he died. And what we're starting to see now is just what we read in Romans, the wages of sin is death. And there's not this special line of people where one line doesn't die and another line does they died. Sin has infected the whole world, leaning, leading to death. But what you have, though, in this Adam-Seth line is something very interesting. Whereas in the Cain chaos line, they had Lamech. Look at verse 18, the Adam-Seth line. Here's this man named Enoch. And then look at verse 22. Look, look at what the text says about Enoch. He's not like Lamech. He walked faithfully with God. And this is stunning to think about because this is what Adam and Eve did with God in the garden as they walked with God in the cool of the day. And this is everything that was lost. But now all of a sudden, someone is again walking with God. And so if the seventh from the Cain side gave us Lamech. Look at the contrast of the seventh from Seth. Here's a man who walks faithfully with God. And all of this is hinting at something so incredible. Yes, the world is in chaos, but the restoration that God is going to bring is hinted at here. We are going to walk with God again in the cool of the day in the garden. And so what this next chapter, this Toledo in 5 verse 1, which in their Bibles is chapter 2, it, it, it's here is the story within the story. And this is not just 
who this story is going to go through, but where the story is going that we are going to get back in the garden. In fact, it says it twice about Enoch, that he walked with God. The second time it says, and Enoch walked with God and he died. Right? Oh, you guys are sleeping right now. I know it's hot in here. It doesn't say that. It says, and Enoch walked with God and God, and he was no more because God took him. Took is the word for marriage. Was no more. It's now wetting our imagination with the hope that death will be broken of, of us returning to that garden to walk with God forever and ever and ever. And see, then what's going to exemplify this Seth Shalom line throughout the Bible, because it's going to keep running all the way through, all the way through Jesus, that yes, they are just as fallen and broken as the Cain chaos line. We can't forget that. Uh, but there's this consistent theme of this line walking with God. And if you remember our summer series, the book of James, I mean, our walk is everything. It's finding God's path and walking it and walking it in a God-like way. But to walk is more than just a walk of obedience. To walk with someone means relationship. And so the Seth Shalom uh, line of things will be a people who are in this deep relationship with God. They're in partnership with God to bring Shalom to chaos as opposed to bringing chaos to Shalom. And this is why, do you remember Peter's question to Jesus? Do you remember he, he, he says, Jesus, if someone hurts me, how many times must I forgive that person? And Peter thinks he's given a really good answer when he says to Jesus, is seven, seven what I should do? And Jesus' answer is no. How about 70 times seven? See, we need to see with that answer, Jesus is turning the ta tables on the chaos in the kingdom of darkness. Because what Jesus just did is he turned Peter's question into a much bigger I issue of just forgiveness. That the line of Cain in Genesis 4 is, is about chaos and bringing chaos to the world. Vengeance and, and violence, 70 times 7. The line of Seth, his gospel in Genesis 5, and it's going to bring shalom to the chaos and Peter, what that looks like? The complete opposite of Lamech. It's forgiveness. And you're not about just now, if you're a part of me and my kingdom, forgiving seven times, but 70 and seven times. In other words, Peter, come on, which side are you on? Because if you're on the Seth Shalom side, uh, you are going to be about forgiveness. And just think about how much forgiveness, when we do that, brings shalom to our world. What about you? Which kingdom do you belong to? Are you in the side of Cain, the way of Cain, or the side of Seth? 
And see, then when we come to the 10th generation of the Seth Shalom line, you have this man named Noah. <laughs> and there's a reason why we've coined this phrase, the days of Noah, because when you uh, listen to the text and what the text says about the days of Noah uh, in verse chapter 6, starting with verse 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And then you go into verse 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and it was full of, in Hebrew, Hamas, violence. The whole earth is full of it. The whole earth is, is filled with this this evil, the world has now fully descended into the tohu vevohu and standing right in the heart of this text, right in the heart of this kind of world is this man, Noah. And listen to what it says in verse eight. And Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And that word for favor in the Hebrew is their word for grace. In other words, God lavished his grace upon Noah. And then the next verse, it says, Noah was a righteous man. Righteous. Righteous in Hebrew is tzedek, from which we get the word tzedakah. Tzedakah is this wonderful Hebrew word that means both justice and mercy, which is hard for us to understand because in our world, justice and mercy are opposites, but in this word, somehow they just come together. So a, a, a righteous man, a, a man of Tzedek is one who has the strength to do right, to live right, and to be right, and at the same time have a heart full of compassion and mercy that leads to radical generosity. And that's Noah. And the other description of Noah in this text is it says he was blameless, and in Hebrew it's this word to meme. This word does not mean blameless, or some of your uh, translations have the word perfect. It literally means to be wholehearted. It's someone whose heart is not divided. It's someone whose heart belongs fully to God. Think about that. Could that be said about any one of us in this room right now? I doubt it. But I want it. In fact, only three people in the Bible are called Sadek and Tamim, righteous and wholehearted. They're Noah, Job, and Daniel. So that should tell you something about what these words mean. According to Jewish tradition, these are the three most righteous men to ever live. In fact, Ezekiel 14 will attest to that. But what you need to see in, in, in this man, Noah, is he is the epitome of Micah 6, verse 8. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God? He is that kind of man in his kind of world. And I say, wow. How does one become a, a Noah? Well, let me end with this because I think it's pretty important because this runs through the whole narrative of the Bible. Because at this point, when we ask such a question, we're so tempted to make this about us when really it's all about God. In verse eight, it said, but God unleashed his, his favor, his grace upon Noah. 
end of chapter. Then you have that Toledo, which introduces us to a new chapter in verse 9. You have the Toledo, the story of Noah. So how did Noah become the man in verse 9? Righteous, wholehearted. It's because of the grace of God in verse 8. See, with a Noah, a Job, a Daniel, any righteous man or any righteous woman, God's grace always comes first. With the righteous, it's never, I'm so good, look at me. It's always, always, God is so good. Their goodness, their righteousness, their wholeheartedness always flows out of a deep experience of God and his grace. Because there are only sinners in this world, only sinners. And yet the Noahs of the world know that deep in their hearts that they're Cain, that they're most Cain, and yet it's in that place they experience the grace and the goodness of God. It's, it's, it's Lauren Daigle's song, What Have I Done? What Have I Done to Deserve Love Like This? And this is where this God, this religion, for lack of a better word, is different than all the religions of the world, including agnosticism and atheism, which make it all about you. It's how well you perform, how good you look, how much you can bring to the table. It's consumer-based. It's God, I give you this and this, so you now need to give me this and this. I've done all of this for you. Now you need to do all of this for me. It's all about earning God's favor. God, do you like me now? Am I acceptable to you now? Have I done enough now? But only with this God, where it's his favor, his grace, and his love, they always come first. And he loves us so much. He wants so much for us. He wants to forgive us. He wants to heal us. He wants to restore us. He wants us back in the garden. He wants us back in his arms. And look at the length, because we know the rest of the story, at what God, the length that God went to do this for us. Do I even need to say? It's the meaning of Christmas. Jesus, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. To which story? Which Toledot do you belong? Which kingdom? Cain chaos? Seth shalom. Would it be that there'd be Noahs today in this generation? Enoch's who walk with God faithfully. God, only because of your grace. God, as you lavish your grace upon us, God, would you open the eyes of our heart. And maybe it's first to see ourselves for what we are. We're all Cain. And we'd all be Cain apart from your grace, but because of your grace, God, God, we can walk with you. We can know you can be a part of your kingdom in the world, for the world. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.